and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Tonight, well this afternoon actually, we have the honor of hosting Mr. Brent Elliott, current master distiller of Four Roses Bourbon, who recently, actually in the last two years, celebrated 130 years of operation. Is that right, Brent? Am I getting the dates right here? That's right. Uh... We were founded in 1888, so just two years ago, we celebrated our 130th. Well, welcome, my friend. How are things going out there in Kentucky? Uh, everything's good here. We're uh, we're maintaining. We're uh, keeping a positive attitude, and uh, weather's turned, which helps a lot. You know, with the social distancing and everything else going on, it's nice to be able to spend some time outdoors. Uh, but business is good. Everyone is, uh, like I said, maintaining high spirits and. Uh, we're trying to make it keep it business as usual as much as we possibly can. Well, right on. Now, you guys have one of the most beautiful distilleries in all of Kentucky. It's the only Spanish mission style distillery out there uh, and, and a big tourist draw. Like people love to travel to do the bourbon trail, uh, stay in Louisville, but then also go out to all the distilleries. And definitely Four Roses is a must see on the bourbon trail. But what is it going to look like now? Like, hopefully we're starting to come out of this COVID shutdown and slowly, cautiously starting to reopen things. But what is the future of being able to do a distillery tour look like post-COVID? Yeah, I guess that's the question on everyone's minds. Uh, In our specific case, what we are doing is we actually opened up the visitor center today. We're not allowing tours. We're not doing tastings, but we're opened up for retail. So, and our, we actually have two facilities. One is at the distillery in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. And the second is Coxes Creek, Kentucky. And that's the bottling warehousing facility. And that will open up in just a few days. So it's going to be baby steps, but we're, we're looking forward to opening up and getting business back to usual. And I know people come from all over to experience the bourbon trail and it's a wonderful experience. And you know, as an industry, as a state, we're all just dying to get that back opened up to, to welcome visitors again. Absolutely. And um, as, as this all started, like initially everything kind of shut down. Were you guys uh, asked by the government to produce hand sanitizer and alcohol for first responders and th- that kind of thing initially? We, um, we had a lot of requests, uh, not from the government. We weren't sanctioned or or asked in any official capacity to produce, but um, we have produced hand sanitizer. We've donated a sanitizer to be used for first responders, um, you know, EMS personnel, and for local restaurants. And well, it's beyond local, like all over Kentucky, we've donated hand sanitizer uh, from the western part of the state to here, Louisville, Lexington, just uh, you know, donating, just trying to do our part to help out in uh, this time of need, so. Of course, because that's how it is out there. Everybody helps each other out. The uh, the bourbon family is very uh, tight-knit in Kentucky, and they, they take care of folks for sure. And, yeah. and just the hospitality, it's in it's in the Kentucky blood to offer that that excellent hospitality. Yeah, you can feel it you know, everywhere in Kentucky and throughout the industry. I've really never seen an industry like this that where there is that sense of camaraderie and I think it's just shared pride across everyone that's making bourbon. So 
it is a unique and very special environment here in Kentucky. That's for sure. And you guys, uh, now the distilleries out in Lawrenceburg, you guys aren't in, you know, heavily populated Louisville, but uh, were you guys doing all right in terms of like, you didn't have any huge spike in cases or anything like that? Have you been doing all right just because it's a little more set off of the beaten path? Yeah, of course, we've been affected and we have seen cases, um, you know, in Lawrenceburg, um, Bardstown, Cox's Creek, close to where the, the, the bottling facility is. But uh, we haven't been as impacted as you know, some of the larger cities, but we've certainly felt it. Well, hopefully folks are staying safe. And now we're in this time of uh, a big, you know, push for social justice. And I saw that you guys had posted on your Instagram site, you know, the purpose of Four Roses Distillery being very anti-racist and down with the cause. And uh, so some big, big changes we're going through as a, as a country. Uh, but moving forward, do you guys anticipate being able to do some kind of like physically distanced tours in the coming months? Uh, we'll be exploring all possibilities because, again, that's our priority apart from making the whiskey is showing what we do, showcasing our uniqueness, showing visitors what we're all about. So that's really a priority of ours to get the doors back open, allow people in and share some of that hospitality that you're talking about. So we don't have a, a plan right now how we're going to or nothing solidified, just how we're going to step it up as we open up the, the visitor's experience. But that's certainly going to be a focus in the upcoming weeks and months. And last time I was out there, you guys were in the process of doing some expansion at the distillery. You added a doubler and another, was it a, another whole still? Or you, you tell me it was a hybrid still yeah. with the doubler or what was it? Yeah, it was um, actually what we did was we did a complete doubling of our capacity at our facility. So simplified, basically everything we had one of before, we now have two. So where we had a column still, there's another one identical to it sitting right next to it. There's another doubler for every fermenter we had. We now have another one, um, yeast tubs, new yeast tubs, condensers, everything has been doubled. And really that's just for the growth here in the U.S. Um, and you've been to Four Roses, so you probably know our history. You know, we have a big, um, big market overseas. Japan and Europe are big markets now and historically for us. But really, the growth we're seeing is here in the U.S. in the last 10, 15 years. So all that increased capacity is really just keep up with the demand here in the U.S. So the last time we were out there on a single barrel buying trip, we got to do the tasting room experience with the whiskey legend al young and it was absolutely amazing we bought uh i think we bought uh between the four seven grand locations we bought four new single barrels um and we picked a combo that we hadn't picked yet we bought dozens of barrels from you guys but we had our first i think it was the obsb or obsf it was one of those two that we hadn't as yet of the 10 different choices possible uh, we, we found one that we hadn't had yet, and it just happened to be one of our favorite picks of the day. So we've now gotten one single barrel of every different variant within that. But to, to I want to get into that a little bit because I think a lot of bourbon fans don't totally understand what you guys are doing out there because it's completely unique in 
the American whiskey world. You guys have five different yeast strains and two different mash bills. The mash bills are essentially the, the recipes that you use, one that has a 20% rye and then the other, which is a 35% rye. But then it really comes into play, which no other distillery does, is the playing around with all these different yeast strains. Can you explain from a scientific background, like what is the theory behind using five different yeast strains to create 10 different whiskeys that you then blend for your your yellow label, your your kind of entry level Four Roses mark. Yeah, absolutely. It actually goes back to when we were owned by Seagram's. And Seagram's had a portfolio of different styles of whiskey, gin, vodka. They had everything you could imagine. They were a huge company. And for their fermentation, which is really the foundation for any spirit or alcohol, any beverage or alcohol beverage you're producing, they had at their disposal multiple yeast strains that they had selected and isolated through the years to be used to create specific flavors through the fermentation. So they might have a certain yeast strain for for product X, another one for product Y, but ultimately that evolved into using multiple yeast strains and multiple mash bills to have more control over the final flavor of any one of their products. And that all started with the Four Roses bourbon, and that um, currently uses 10 recipes. We would say up to 10. Typically, it's 10 recipes. And that was always because with something like straight bourbon whiskey, you don't have control over every part of the process. It doesn't matter how much technology you employ or science or experience. There are always curves that are going to be thrown at you. And there's always a, a surprise waiting around each corner. There are always the, the variables of weather and wood and grains. So because of that, it's hard to create an absolutely consistent product day in and day out using the exact same methods. So using utilizing the different recipes, two mash bills and the five yeast strains, we have control over the final blending of these different flavor components, these different recipes to hit a certain flavor profile. And now we've taken that one step further and we use those different recipes in different combinations to create different products. So I think we'll taste a couple later, but all those that we're gonna taste later have different compositions, different recipes and different percentages that go into them. So some have a little more fruit or spice or herbal character or totally unique flavors because of the way these different recipes work with each other. So that's really kind of the foundation of our uniqueness and how we achieve our different flavor profiles from our different products. And it's gone one step beyond that. And this started at the uh, inception of our barrel program. People were wanting to taste the individual recipes because we're always talking about them. We're so proud of them. People say, oh, that's great, but you know, I want to taste that OBSF or that OESQ. And so when we started our barrel program, the uh, full strength uh, private selection, non-chill filtered that, that you selected, that same program, that's when we decided to pull the curtain back and give people the opportunity to actually retailers to come in and select their own barrels from any of those recipes. And that's done great for us. It, it's great for uh, consumers. It's great for the, the bourbon guys out there, bourbon guys and girls that are really that are trying to elevate the experience or are looking for an elevated experience. That's really a good way for us to provide that because well, you've experienced it. You can go through and not only do you taste the difference from barrel to barrel, which is unique in itself, but you can taste the difference that a particular yeast strain 
will will create versus another yeast strain. And and that go, it all goes back to fermentation. Through the fermentation, these yeast strains. I mean, all yeast creates alcohol. That's that's the primary um, byproduct of fermentation. But you also get a lot of other compounds, these acids and esters and fusel oils and all these other compounds that are in there at a small percentage, but they have a lot of impact at a low volume, and they create they create the differences that you see typically in from one whiskey brand to the next. And there are a lot of variables that go into it, the water, the, the climate, the level of char, um, methods of production. But one of those big um, one of those big variables is the yeast strain that's used because of the flavors. It, at the very beginning, you know, through fermentation, these flavors that you get will ultimately, whether it's 5, 10, 15 years down the road in a barrel, they'll influence the flavors that you get once that whiskey's aged. For sure. And I noticed one thing about Four Roses. When you go to visit some of the other distilleries, they have really tall rack houses. Like they're essentially uh -huh. these gigantic solar ovens, you know, uh, like out at Beam, they actually paint a lot of the, the rack houses are black. And so during the hot Kentucky summers, on the seventh floor of those rack houses, you know, it's like 130, 140 degrees up there. It's crazy. But yeah. you guys, from what I've seen, maybe that you, I haven't been out to Cox. You guys don't do uh, tours out at Cox Creek at the bottling facility, do you? Yeah, we do. Uh -huh. Oh, well, my bad. You I haven't made it up visit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. I, I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> and we can take you to the, one of those warehouses. And I think I know what you're getting at. You've seen them. They're, they're short warehouses. They're single yes. store. They're, you guys are more like Dunnage style warehouses. Was what you see in Scotland are more Dunnage style. They don't do tall rack houses, but you guys also have tall rack houses that we don't no, see we don't. at the. Oh, you don't uh, at all. All every style. Yeah, they're all at that one location. Uh, we currently have twenty-one warehouses there. We're about to put two more in in the next uh, two years, and um, that was all by design because. It's very astute of you and you hit the nail on the head when you get up really high in one of those warehouses you're going to see a, a huge temperature variation compared to what you're going to see at the bottom and with aging whiskey temperature is one of the, the biggest factors the when you always hear say you know kentucky is so good for aging whiskey because we have hot summers very hot summers and very cold winters so we get that cycle that pressure pushes the liquid into and out of the wood so we get a really good cycle um for aging um but when you're looking at that variation from the bottom to the top in the summer you are going to see a big difference in how he's aging because of that temperature variation and most distilleries have the multitude of warehouses and they use that to their advantage and that that can be a benefit too because you do get that variety from the bottom to the top and so you can kind of hand select different locations of the warehouses because they're inconsistent by design and create unique products that way or differentiate products that way. Uh, mm -hmm. With us, because we we control all the 10 recipes, we're not looking to add that or introduce that extra variable to complicate things. So we like the single story warehouses that creates a more consistent aging. But uh, even in single story warehouses, we see maybe eight degree temperature fluctuation from the bottom to the top versus 30 plus degrees we'll see in some of those larger warehouses. Um, but you'll see even in our private barrel program, once you go out far enough, even that eight degree temperature variation after about 
10, 15 years, you will see some variation from the bottom to the top. But for the majority of our products that are between five and, and eight years old, the single store warehouses keep everything consistent and make our job doing the blending and making things consistent much easier. Now, you are a Kentucky boy yourself. You grew up in Owensboro, is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. And you went to the University of Kentucky. And That's right. Did you study chemistry out there? Is that uh, what did where did you uh, yeah. learn how to distill? Uh, they didn't teach me any distillation and chemistry, at least not alcohol distillation. I d yeah, I dabbled in different kinds of distillation in some of my labs, but I still never dreamt I'd be doing this. You know, the <laughs> so one thing from my mind was <laughs> that my degree would lead me to to bourbon production. Had it occurred to me, I would have been thrilled, but unfortunately, it didn't occur to me at the time. I don't know why. Um, but uh, yeah, I've always just enjoyed science and learning how things work and and chemistry. It, but it wasn't until 2005, just shortly before I took a, a role at Four Roses, that really it hit me that maybe my training and something that I could be passionate about could really come together. And it was I was actually living in Tennessee, and I came up and I took a tour of Woodford Reserve. And ah, beautiful it, it just, facility. Oh yeah, it's it's beautiful. And I'm I'm walking through there, and I don't know what how it hit me. I don't know if I if they said something about the chemistry of it, or if I just was just looking at the process. Um, it could have been some of those single barrel samples. It could have been. <laughs> <laughs> but what it something clicked and. Really, that was on a Saturday. The very next day, I got back home in Tennessee or back to Tennessee and found a posting for this job at Four Roses Online. It was assistant quality manager, basically just running instruments for the lab, just start actually starting the laboratory because we had just come back to the U.S. a few years prior to that. So we were really just trying to lay the infrastructure for our growth here in the U.S. And we had no idea where we were going at the company. Um, and I had no idea. You know, I just. I interviewed once on site uh, just a few weeks after that trip to Woodford and fell in love with the product. That was the first time I tried it was because at the time you could only get it in Kentucky. So I had to buy a bottle of single barrel on my way up from Kentucky to or from Tennessee to Kentucky for the interviews the night before. And it was so hard to find. I even talked to people at the distillery before the interview and I said, I asked them, you know, where can I find a bottle of this? You know, I don't want to insult you guys, but I can't find it anywhere. And they said, well, yeah, that makes sense because it's only in Kentucky. And they figured out a place that was on my route from Nashville to Frankfort, Kentucky, that would actually sell it. There was a little place, you know, a pretty good-sized liquor store in Bowling Green, Kentucky, that sold Foros a single barrel. So that was my first taste of Foros was the night before my uh, my interview so i immediately fell in love with the bourbon then uh, i fell in love with the facility uh the people were fantastic and uh i got to meet you know, jim al john ray the whole the whole group and the group was pretty small at the time there were probably there were less than 10 people probably in management it was um just a skeleton crew because again we were only selling in kentucky uh we had just recently returned to the u.s and you know, they told me what their plan was. You know, it was right. They knew they had a good product. There was so much pride I could I could sense that from everybody I talked to. The plan was to expand and to to go out to other states, and it sounded great. Um, but 
but I had no idea. No one had any idea where we'd be you know, 15 years later or where we were even even five years after that, where we were was shocking. You know, within five years of that, we were in all 50 states doing great. Wow. So you came up under Jim Rutledge, who took uh, – he had been the master distiller since like 95, right? And that at that yeah. time, he was – making whiskey essentially for the Japanese market. Is that right? Is that where mainly Four Roses was being sold overseas? Because there was like a 30, 40 year period where you guys were not being sold from the late fifties all the way up until the eighties. You you couldn't get Four Roses in, in the States. Is that right? That's that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, Seagram's pulled Four Roses straight bourbon off the U.S. shelves and focused on Japan primarily, but also Europe. Um, Japan was always our biggest market, and then France and Spain and a lot of countries in Europe, 50 countries uh, total globally. Um, but yeah, you could not get Four Roses straight bourbon whiskey in the US. You could get Four Roses, Seagram's kind of, they pulled a fast one. When they took, everybody knew Four Roses in the 40s and 50s, it was a huge brand, but, um, so they wanted to maintain that uh, that brand equity. So they kept the name, but they switched the liquid. They went from a straight bourbon whiskey to a blended whiskey in the U.S. So you're right from the 50s, late 50s, all the way up until 2001, 2002. That's all you could get in the U.S. But that's when Seagram sold. They sold the company to Kieran. Here in Brewery from Japan, who had been distributing Four Roses for years in Japan. Aha, uh -huh, that makes sense. Yeah, and it's interesting because really they bought the company mostly, from what I understand, just to retain the rights to keep distributing Four Roses in Japan. It's such a big brand in their portfolio. They really had no intention of coming back to the U.S. at that point. But fortunately for us, um, I think all of us, Jim Rutledge was, he'd been trying to get Four Roses back in the U.S. for a while. You know, he loved the brand. Um, he'd been with the company years by that time. So he was very, very familiar with Four Roses. He'd moved around. He'd been um, in different departments, but I think production was really what he loved. So he was very familiar with the production of whiskey and then Four Roses. So he'd been trying to get Seagram's to bring it back to the U.S. for a while. Uh, fortunately, when Kieran came in, that was the uh, the first thing he asked, the first request he had of them. Could you guys please consider bringing Four Roses back to the U.S.? And that's pretty much where they were when I started. They brought it back, um, but it was limited. It was just in Kentucky. The focus was still Europe and Japan. But from there, once once we got our foot in the door back in the U.S., the uh, it kind of propelled itself. Um, it was it was a little tough early on because we had to overcome the image of being a blended whiskey, but um, it was just such a good product that, and I remember when I first started, it was before I had kids and Jim would be out, Jim and Al and, and John Ray and, and others of the original group would be out um, doing events. Um, not events like we we know today, you know, much much smaller scale, just charity events, just trying to get Four Roses out there. And I started doing the same. My wife and I would go and we'd do small charity events in Louisville, Lexington, um, Frankfurt. Uh, these little cities, we no, Frankfurt's a little city. These other cities aren't that small, but we'd go and we'd do these events um, just to 
get it out there in front of people. And people really just enjoyed the product primarily, but the story, um, I think everyone's passion kind of was contagious and everyone sensed that. And so the brand really got a lot of momentum sort of on a grassroots level early on. And, and then before we know it, we're adding Indiana, we're adding New York, then we wake, wake up one day and we're in all 50 states and then we wake up a few years later and we've got to expand because we can't keep up with the growth. And it, it's just been a surreal 15 years since I've joined the company. And it kind of, you know, it all kind of started. I, I No one really can pinpoint exactly when the whole resurgence in the popularity of bourbon happened. But, you know, it wasn't long after 2005. You know, it was kind of starting then maybe, but I think it was 2008, 2009 before you really started to see the widespread impact of, I like to think of as the rediscovery of something that was under our noses forever. It was all, it was yeah, always right. there, but uh, so it's been exciting. Well, we at seven grand have tried to help out with that. Yes, been great. Interesting, amazing stuff. Now the Japanese mark is a silver label and it's, it's called like what super premium or something like that. What is it it's called? Like it, it's, it's super, super premium. premium. And yeah. is there a difference? Okay. In terms of like, you guys like we'll, we'll get into it with your small batch but when you when you've got the 10 different recipes is is the super premium only a certain combo of those recipes or does it use all 10 or are you aiming for a specific flavor profile that's different from say what the small batch has become or can you explain like kind of what the the japanese flavor profile is for for that bourbon yeah, absolutely. It's just like the rest of our products. Every one of our products has its own fingerprint or recipe or, or formula of recipes. And that's no different. That has that utilizes four different recipes in a combination that you won't find in any other products. And th there's some other differences to proof. It's 86 proof. Uh, the age, it's a little bit higher than our standard um, single barrel. It's at least eight years old. And 20% of that is 10 years or older. Um, and then we also have a uh, fine old bourbon or black label that's also available only in the Japanese market. Same thing there. That's two recipes. Oh, and wow. So it's different from any of the others. It's different from small batch or small batch select or single barrel. And I get asked a lot about the super premium. Um, for one, it's a very different bottle. And with a name like super premium, and the fact that we're owned by a Japanese company, people jump to the conclusion that maybe the Japanese are wanting to keep that over in Japan because it's super premium to keep it for themselves. Um, but the reality is that is in 2006, before we introduced our small batch, the idea was to bring the super premium to the U.S. market. And we uh -huh. took that. Yeah. That, so that was the idea. We took that to focus groups. And they didn't like it. They didn't, not necessarily. It too sweet or what What was it? I'm just curious, is like, is there a difference in what the Japanese market tends to gravitate toward in terms of an American bourbon from what what we see American drinkers liking? You know what I mean? Is it, Do we like spicier, more oaky flavors than they do? Do they have a tendency toward a certain kind of flavor profile in Japan? I just, I'm just curious. You know, I've heard people, I've heard 
heard it said that the uh, the Japanese market was or population was introduced to older whiskey in the 80s. I don't know how much truth there is this, but there was a bit of a glut in the U.S. So the when people were looking for another market and Japan was was one of those markets, a lot of the whiskey that they were introduced to or that was pushed was older or more aged. Uh, how much truth there is uh-huh. that? I'm not sure. Because I see today, um, you know, the products that are consumed in Japan seem to parallel pretty closely the, the ages of whiskeys consumed in the U.S. But I think it could be said of any foreign market that maybe isn't as familiar with straight bourbon whiskey as we are here in, in the U.S., that the perception, they put more weight on on age. Their, their perception is of quality is more tightly linked to age maybe than here in the U.S. And I think that's probably because everywhere else in the world, when you think whiskey or when you say whiskey, people tend to think of scotch. Uh, here in the right. U.S., we have our own whiskey. And when you're talking about scotch whiskey, I think it is more true that the age more often, of course, not always, but more often can equate to a, a higher quality product or yeah, a because lot of the scotches kind of hit their sweet spot at like 15 or 16 years, whereas a 15-year-old bourbon is going to be a very, very oaky uh, sipper for sure. Exactly. Um, but actually, the reason that it wasn't the flavor that the focus groups didn't like about the Super Premium, it was the bottle shape. The, the fact that it's kind of in a wine bottle. <laughs> You've got to realize this is pretty happy. You know, today everyone would recognize a wine-shaped bottle with bourbon in it. They, they'd be reminded, or it would make me think of Happy Van Winkle. But at the time, yeah, I guess no one knew that uh, bourbon could be bottled in something other than a, a square bottle. Or <laughs> so that right. was really, oh, that was really funny. the issue they had with it. But so because because of that, we developed small batch from scratch, both in the flavor profile or the recipes used and the bottle design and really launched the whole small small batch concept, which is utilizing the different recipes to create something unique. And that's really where you kind of put your personal imprint on the whole thing, right? Because you took over the reins as master distiller, what, five years ago now in 2015, 2016, is that right? Yeah, 2015. And so, and since then, you guys have kind of moved into the small batch being kind of like the the champion expression of the American marks. Is that is that a, a fair thing to say? Like that That's, was kind of what you brought to the market is is the small batch. You personally, uh, well, the, the small batch, the uh, ninety proof small batch, the original that was two thousand six. Um. But that was really when we started the concept. But here in the last few years, we really have started to use that as a platform to communicate our uniqueness. And you can see that with, we continue to do the limited edition small batches, which is the exact same concept. The liquid's gonna be a little bit different because it's older, it's non-chill filtered and higher um, barrel strength. But um, with the small batch select that we released last year, that's really solidifying that that foundation or that that small batch initiative that we have. That again, it's it's our strength to create new products that way, and it's it's 
fun for us to showcase what we can do. So it's a, it's a wonderful platform. A lot of this, like you guys had some other experimentation going on for a while in terms of your marks, but the demand has just gotten so high. I mean, when we were out there buying, I think Al told us that uh, you guys have had to limit the amount of single barrels that you can sell now because just the demand for your bourbon is so high that you have to kind of cap the amount of people who are coming out and buying single barrels. It's just huge popularity because it's just such an amazing bourbon. Uh, is that right? It's like you guys That's, have to be kind of careful with your supplies. Like the small match is something that you can kind of keep on in continuance, right? Like, well, we we've had to watch our volumes on all of our products over the last four to five years. Um, at, at any age, uh, the demand's been in most years higher than what we actually have. Uh, fortunately, we still had room for growth. You know, we've budgeted that growth in, but we've had to control it a little bit. Um, and that's really the reason we expanded. And But the barrel program, absolutely. That one is even more challenging because that's the challenge in making whiskeys. You've got a lag. Um, with our Four Roses bourbon. Big lag. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's five or six years. And that's our youngest product. With the uh, private barrels, that's an eight-year lag. So if we didn't plan on this kind of growth. We didn't foresee this kind of popularity in the program eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years ago. And that's the age range of, of private barrels. It's eight, 12 years. So, you know, we just, 12 years ago, I think we had just started the program. We had no idea where it was going. So we weren't putting away hundreds of barrels a year and just setting them aside for this. Uh, but fortunately, we understand how important it is. We love to be able to offer these. So, and by nature, you can't really just put barrels down and say these are going to be private barrels. Um, by nature, or by design, these are hand-selected batches that really seem to be maturing very well, that even at 11, 12 years old, they're not going to be overly oaky. They're still going to be interesting and vibrant and um, and worth showcasing that whatever recipe it might be. So in, okay. in terms of the current single barrel program, do you help hand select the barrels that are going to be chosen in the single barrel buying? Yeah. What uh, a big part of my job is doing the formulations for the different products. So it's evaluating barrels, batches, and ultimately deciding what's going to go into each product uh, and which batches. And through those different evaluations, that's when these special batches can be aging very well, will present themselves and I'll set those aside and earmark them to be potentially used for private selections or for maybe a limited edition. And then once they come of age, so for like a private barrel, once they hit eight years old or might start looking at them at seven and a half, um, we'll pull those barrels again and at that point, decide whether they will be a private selection or they won't. And then, so behind the scenes too, I will look at every barrel before it allowed into the program um, or rolled out for customers. But unfortunately, I don't get a lot of opportunity to actually go and select with, with customers. Of course, you've got a huge responsibility. Now, when that that's an interesting question right there is it how do you spend your day do you spend most of your time in the tasting lab or like 
how much of your day do you get to go? I mean, I know you guys have a, a panel of tasters, of course, but how much time do you actually spend during your average work day or are there certain days a week that you spend focused in the tasting lab? Like walk us through a, a day in the life of a master distiller at Four Roses. I guess part of what's so interesting about my job is every day is different. No two days are, are ever alike. Even if I plan it to be a certain way, it always ends up going in a different direction. Uh, but I would say a very productive and interesting day for me would be maybe uh, what I enjoy the most is getting to spend time in the sensory lab, uh, especially when I'm looking at there are different kinds of evaluations. Some are single barrel evaluations where it's a batch that's already been pre-selected and going through and just making sure that there aren't any out. And that's interesting because you see the differences from barrel to barrel. Uh, what I really enjoy is pulling a bunch of samples from different recipes at whatever age it might be to, to see the differences from batch to batch. And you also see barrel to barrel there because they're multiple barrels from each batch that are pulled. But I always enjoy that because you you get to track these certain batches. The first time we look at a batch is when it hits four years of age. And then that same batch will maybe just if it's earmarked for a small batch, it'll just sit in the barrel and won't be reevaluated for maybe two two more years. And so it's revisiting those batches and see how they mature and learning um and it's always learning. There's always more to be learned as far as you know, sensory and what you can anticipate a certain barrel to do based on its its recipe or its attributes at time, two years, three years, whatever it might be. Um, so an ideal day or a typical day, if I were focusing on the sensory lab, would maybe be, let's use small batch select as an example. It might be if we're about to refresh the small batch select formula because the last time it was refreshed was three or four months ago, um, and we have to refresh these formulas all the time because we're using the same barrels today as we were using six months ago, and the product is going to be six months older on the shelf when you buy it. So we're always trying to put balance the age, you know, put new batches into it, keep everything balanced, keep the flavor profile the same. So it might be pulling batches of small batch select, small batch select, and six different recipes, looking at all those batches, bringing them together, doing test blends to ensure that's consistent. And that's always a lot of fun. Um, Super interesting. Oh, it is. And you're looking at six different recipes, um, two different ages. They're typically between six and seven years of age. So you've got a lot of variety to look at and it's it's really a almost like a palette of all these different flavors that that are there to work with and for a product like that it's about consistency um and that's fun but i keep saying okay i thought of something even better it's working on the limited editions so that's really uh -huh. that's really exciting because that is not just getting to evaluate different batches but you're evaluating uh, a wider range of batches, a different, uh, as far as age, these are batches that are 10 to 22, 23, 24 years old, 
could be any recipe. It's all these batches that have been set aside because they are just so special. They're aging so well, not getting too oaky. Um, it's pulling those together and not trying to create something for consistency, but to create something totally new. So that's where I really feel like we can get creative and explore new avenues. Really, the only criteria there is for it to be good, and that's ultimately kind of subjective. But by good, it is smooth, mellow, and and different from maybe years past. And that's really just, again, to demonstrate how we can do things differently with different recipes. But that's a lot of fun. And that's usually, it's so much fun that it usually takes me two plus months to, to finalize whatever that test blend might be for any given year's limited edition. So it's a lot of wow. you know, scientists work, got measuring out, you know, with the, the different cylinders and different, you know, we're working in milliliters and test blends one, two, three, it go up to, we've done 60, 70 test blends before. And really the that, hardest part is knowing when to stop. Well, does it, as you're going through those two and a half months of tests to try to figure out what the new blend's going to be, uh, as the whiskey, so you're you're pulling from all these different barrels, but in these samples, they're resting together. So does it change a little bit as it rests? Yeah, it does. Um, typically, and I couldn't tell you that, you know, after a week, it doesn't change anymore. After six months, it doesn't change anymore. But I can tell you that immediately after mixing, there it, it changes quite a bit in a short period of time. And so if I'm doing a test blend, I, I never look at it or try not to look at it. Sometimes it's difficult, but it takes some self-control. But I typically don't look at anything before 24 hours. I let all those those flavors marry and mingle and kind of mellow out before I evaluate the samples that uh, those test blends have been mixed up. Well, I'm talking to you off like a, a super nerd. Would you do you have some of the samples with you? I've got a box of samples here. I uh, sent out yeah. that are some of your. Uh, this is a great box that I've got. This got the small batch, the small batch select, and then also the 2017 limited edition barrel strength. Would you okay. be so wonderful as to maybe walk us through a little testing and a little tasting and and kind of give us the experience of what it's like to be in the lab with you as you're trying to, you know, go through these different expressions. I would love to. I think let's start with a small batch. Okay. So once all the beautiful, there you go. That's my little bottle. You've got a bigger bottle. I'm jealous. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not jealous. I'm grateful. So this and, is, and, and, and I also have Laura sent me these nice little 130 year oh, anniversary nice. tasting glasses from, from just a couple of years ago when you guys celebrated 130 nice. years at that. Beautiful. Yeah, that was a big event for us. We we had actually that year for our limited edition small batch, it wasn't like the 2017. It it actually was commemorating the 130th. So that was the 130th anniversary of small batch. So any year we have something to, to commemorate, we will commemorate it through our small batch limited edition. Uh, the one you have is 2017. We we tried to find something to commemorate, but I don't think we had anything in 2017. So we just uh, marked it as 2017. But it's a fantastic release. I look forward to tasting that here in a second. But anyway, this small batch is it's a combination of six and seven-year-old barrels. 
It's 90 proof. It's four of our recipes. So it's a combination you won't find in the other products. And this one is both mash bills. And it's right down the middle. So it's 50% of the recipes for the high rye mash bill, 50% of the low rye mash bill. And then it utilizes two of our yeast strains. It's the K yeast, which creates spice, that those baking spices that, um, that we'll taste here in a second. And the O yeast strain, which creates a lot of fruit. It's a very rich, fruity um, type of flavor that you get from that yeast strain. And you said this is only 90 proof? Yeah. Wow. I'm getting, I'm, it, when you say, what's funny, you, you say like the low rye, which is 20%, which in, in the rest of the bourbon world, 20% is a high rye mash bill, but you guys <laughs> consider 20%, that, that's your low rye. So I'm getting a lot of spice from that. I'm getting like a mintiness that I imagine is coming from from that rye grain. Are you, where do you guys get the, the rye? Are you guys importing that from like Germany or do you guys get it from the States? Where's, where's the rye that you use come from? Yeah, it's uh, European. Yeah, sometimes Germany, just that, that whole region. That's not all the time, but I would say 95 plus percent of the time, the rye that we get is European rye. And it's just and the quality. Europeans, non-GMO. Yeah, non-GMO. They, they're, they're very strict out there. Yeah, and their rye is just fantastic. We occasionally will get Canadian rye, but I I can't remember the last time we. It's been a few years. But yeah, I'm, it, I'm getting a lot going on. There's like some dark chocolate, like a cacao note in here, but also a super floral thing. Like a, there's a bubble gummy thing. There's like some cherry in here as well. There's so much going on. Like mint, cherry, chocolate, bubble gum. Oh yeah, that's gorgeous. It's got this rose thing going on. I'm, I'm, I'm letting myself get too into those florals, but there's, a, there's a beautiful, beautiful marriage going on in here. Yeah, but you're right. When I say low rye, that really a lot of times I try to clarify that because there's nothing low about twenty percent rye, and that really translates into the the aroma and the flavors of this. So you get that that nice spice. And for me, I get um, a lot of the fruit. I, I get it on the nose and mm -hmm. it translates right through, you know, on the, into the flavors and a little yeah. bit of the spice. It kind of counterbalances that rich cherries. You said cherries. That's what I get a lot of from this yeast strain and subsequently the small batch is that maraschino cherry, that really deep, like dark stone fruit type, type impression. Yeah. And, but layers of complexity because you've also got that that KE strain and the high rye, which gives two different kinds of spice, that rye spice. And then you've got the, the K, which to me, it's I get sometimes allspice or nutmeg, just a whole slew of, of the baking spices. That's a lot of times when I say spice, especially people that aren't really familiar with bourbon that already have the impression that potentially a hot drink that sometimes could potentially turn people away because it sounds like pepper or heat, but not at all. No, it's not. It's not hot. It's not peppery. It's not bitter. It's really accessible, especially with those, like, it's even got a little apple-y note in here. I think it, mm -hmm. uh, on the front end of the palate, it's really fruity, yeah. but also spicy, but never bitter. It's really a delightful dram there. Wow. 
Now, how much is the Four Roses small batch going for at your local liquor store out there in Kentucky? I know our prices in California, I wouldn't expect you to know what that is, but this is not your yellow label. It's not your base level product, which I love. It, it's, a, it's a little step above that. What is it going to run me if I'm going, which I highly recommend anybody, if you go to Kentucky, hit the liquor stores. They've got the coolest liquor stores in the whole country. You guys have whiskeys that you can't find anywhere else, often that are Kentucky-only releases. Uh, but where is this going to land probably for a bottle, like 40, between 40 and $50? Not even that high. We're probably high 20s, low 30s. Wow, for the small that is a bargain. That is amazing. This is an outstanding bourbon for under 40 bucks, like in the uh, high 20s, low 30s. That's amazing. Really, really quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. Now, we have this small batch select. Now, this is something that's one of your personal creations, right? The small batch select is like something you guys just come out with. And you kind of helped steer the ship in, in this one, right? Uh, I worked on the the flavor. So when it came to formulating what recipes went into this, it was the same process that I went over or I described for limited editions, where it was a blank slate. I wasn't trying to formulate something to a target, or it was just being creative, creating something that was new and and unique. That was that was exactly what I did with this one. So it was we had the concept, we knew we wanted to do a small batch. And so the idea then was to create something using that same small batch concept that was different and and hopefully enjoyable. And I, I really love this one. I think it's uh, well for one, it's the first addition to our permanent lineup since 2006. So we introduced the regular small batch in 06. We started the uh, limited editions in 2007. And then we started the private barrel program a few years after that. But of like the standard products that you can just pick up year round all over the country, we hadn't added anything since 06. So with this, we thought long and hard about the modern consumer and what we wanted to offer that would really differentiate that from the others. And uh, you can see the proof is higher, it's 104 proof, and it's also non-chill filtered. These are two things that a lot of the modern whiskey consumers are looking for. Six of the different recipes in this one, 104 proof, non-chill filtered. Now, okay, this is something I, I won't dive too deep in this because I can nerd out on this one a lot. Now, non-chill filtering, when it's over 100 proof, you won't need to chill filter it, right? Because it, it's, not gonna, it's not going to flock because it's just that the alcohol content is so high. But in specifically the bourbon world, there's a lot of talk about filtering, but there are different ways to filter, right? There are like, there aren't there different forms? I was talking to Dave Pudlow, who was a leader of the education program out at Maker's Mark, and he he was putting a bug in my ear one day. It was all just like, he's like filtration, but he wasn't talking about like chill filtration. He's talking about different kinds of carbon essentially that you can kind of 
use in different ways to that will kind of target certain aspects of a flavor profile. So you can put like a this kind of, I guess, a specific kind of charcoal dust. It's it's natural. They're not like it's not unnatural, but they they've figured out like carbon is such a dense molecule. It, it's got so much surface area that they've been able to figure out what certain kinds of I guess the easiest way to describe it would be like charcoal dust could actually kind of extract certain flavors uh, in at the end. Is Am I totally crazy or is this yeah. something that you could actually do to help like extract flavors that you thought were kind of off in terms of like m fully matured bourbons? Or can you talk to us a little bit about what the other methods of filtration that are out there? Yeah, um, actually charcoal or or carbon, it's used, it, it's really good for filtration. It's used in you know, fish tanks. It's used. Oh yeah. Um, even those, those, those little hangover pills that you, that you see, they're activated charcoal. They're carbon. So the idea is, and it's true. It carbon is a very good, it, it just, it binds or you have different compounds that will absorb to it. And, um, so it is used in, well, even our char, the char on the inside of the barrel, that char acts as carbon, activated carbon, so that when that what that liquid's going into and out of the wood, one of the things that's happening is you're extracting some of the potentially rougher compounds that you'll have in the, the raw spirit or the white dog. Um, you also have like the charcoal mellowing that they do down in Tennessee. Kind of the same theory there. I think that also imparts some more maple sweetness to it, also. But um, it also is sort of a precursor to that that filtration you're going to get in the barrel. It pulls out certain compounds, and uh, it also is used. We don't use it for this, but um, some distilleries will use it in the um, the filtration process, mostly for the same reason that we do the chill filtration. It to, to bind to some of those larger molecules that can lead to flock at, uh -huh. at lower rates or at cold temperatures. So it's Which utilized. Those fusel oils. Those are those are like big waxy molecules that actually probably taste really good. But for people who don't know what they are, it, it might look like a little like strings in your glass. It might look a little. It makes your whiskey cloudy, and and some people might think that's weird, but it's actually those are flavors. You know. They're, the fat to the whiskey yeah and some of them it's it's weird to think that there could be something fatty in your whiskey but a lot of those compounds are they're like they're uh well one particular compound that we look for as a marker like every time we chill filter a batch we we analyze it just to ensure that that filtration was um, sufficient and there's a particular marker that we look for and it's um beta cetosterol and it's basically the plant's version of cholesterol. It's a big fatty uh -huh. molecule. And it's fun. It's I take it as a supplement to keep my cholesterol down, beta cholesterol. I actually take yeah. it as a, as, a, as a supplement myself, a vitamin supplement. <laughs> you, can, you can lower your dose if you're drinking non-chill filtered bourbon because it's in there. <laughs> it's, uh -huh. it's low levels. I'm talking you know, parts per billion. Um, I think a raw single barrel it might be 1500 parts per, bi per billion. It, it's not, it, it's 
still pretty trace. It's a small enough level that even though it's a big molecule, um, because it is fatty, it's uh, hydrophobic, it will stay in solution, like you mentioned, at high proof. If you have a lot of alcohol in there, it's going to stay in solution. You start adding water, you start changing that environment, it's going to precipitate out, and you're going to get that cloudiness. And now that's just one of the compounds. That's the one we look at as a marker. Um, but there are others in there, these other big chain molecules that that we're pulling out for the chill filtration that may or may not contribute to any flavor. There's such a small percentage of what's in there. But um, I can't argue and when we chill filter, there's something we're taking out, whether that's impacting the final flavor or not. It's hard to say, um, but I'm not going to argue with anyone that swears that all they'll drink is non-chill filtered bourbon because it's unadulterated because that's true. I mean, we are through chill, chill filtering. We are taking some of those undesirable, visually undesirable compounds out. Um, we're not taking them totally out. We're just taking them down to a level to where they're still going to be. They're not going to come out of solution at whatever proof they're filtered at. That makes sense. So well, it does make sense. Thank you. Uh, can you walk us through this small batch select? Uh, like as you're nosing it, as you yeah, tap it well, over your tongue, what, what are you reminded of? Uh, well, when you said mint and small batch, I was assuming or thinking you're really going to see some mint in this one because I think you get, I get minty notes from rye anyway, but the Ooh. FD strain that's used in this one, is even more mint. I get spearmint on the nose. Yeah, it's a different kind of mint. I was gonna say, it's like, wait a second, it's not the same kind of mint no. coming through as strongly for me. It is more of a spearmint thing. It's like a a green sweet mint as opposed to like peppermint, which does have a spicier mintiness, if that makes sense. Uh, totally, uh, yeah, it, it's like a sweeter, lighter, like you said green. It's funny because whenever I try to describe rye or the FE strain. I always want to just talk about green and like shades of green. So with this, I see it's like a lighter shade of green. It, it's more yeah. of a spearmint. Um, it's not as deep of a, a mint tone. It's more of a, a bright, crisp, more spearminty side of mint. And that's really, and that's not the only aroma I get. But when I'm comparing this side by side with a single barrel or a small batch, that's what really jumps out at me as. The, the unique flavor characteristic in this one. But I also get a lot of nice fruit underneath that. I get hints of spice. It has some of the KE strain, just like the small batch, but at a much lower level. Um, this is um, both mash bills again, and it's the VE strain, which is the delicate fruit, FE strain, which presents uh, herbal, minty, kind of um, those notes we were talking about earlier, and then the K, which is spice. And for me, both on the the nose and the palate, I think it's that F and that V, the way they work together, that that light, experimenty type flavor with those delicate. And the fruit on this, the V is more apricot, pear, um, light apple. So I think those two, they're so delicate and so, so light. The way they work together, they create something that's really unique. And that's the flavor that really defines this for me. I'm getting some like purple plum, like a, a dark plum, like it's stone fruit, but it it's not as light as apricot to me. I'm getting like it's a it's a big dark stone fruit, like this beautiful sweet plum 
like fully ripe summertime dark purple plum there is the great the oak comes through really strong too you get these nice toasty notes in there like yeah uh like a little touch of that allspice or, or clove it, it's there's some i guess maybe it's the nutmeg it's something kind of woody but not bitter yeah, cloves yeah, I guess closer I, like, I get clove in this again it's that wow trying to express myself that that green impression you know whether it's rye clove um it's well it's it's funny because we get i mean i lead a lot of public tastings every week well not for the last few months of course because we've all been in lockdown but uh we get so into our vernacular as whiskey tasters that it's interesting to to see what other folks who are in a similar line of business but different say someone who works in the perfume world they actually describe scents as being colors a lot like they have like this is a green scent or this is a pink scent or a magenta scent or a purple scent or an orange scent they use colors to describe their sensory experience a lot more than we do so i try to like when we do our tastings encourage people you don't have to be stuck in a certain way of thinking like use your own creativity like maybe it's a song that you're reminded of or a fabric or you know there's no wrong answers you know we we are allowed to let our imaginations run wild because smelling and tasting is just that you're remembering things that you're reminded of with it you know it's it doesn't have to just be in the food world it can be other things like colors and experiences or other memories you know uh, I, that's great that you said that because i struggle with that a lot I, i'm tasked with putting out tasting notes for products a lot and sometimes there's not a tasting note for what i'm tasting and so i'm basing it on memories with of either something i've had before in whiskey or any other kind of memory or you know different just different ways to make sense in my own mind and some and i i see colors with these flavors sometimes and i can't just say like even if i'm saying ripe cherry or or plum or you know, sometimes it's it's close to that but maybe not exact it's rare that i get um well, occasionally something like cinnamon. Sometimes it's just in your face. It is exactly like cinnamon. Cinnamon, like, yeah. It's like having red hots in your mouth. Yeah, and that that those those times those things happen. But a lot of times it's there's so much going on in a good whiskey that um, it's also like the suggestion. Like you mentioned plum. Now, so I start seeing that if if there's a lot going on in a whiskey, and a lot of times with these good complex whiskeys, you're going to find a lot of different flavors if you look for them and somebody suggests them you, you might just see that flavor so there's so much going on that when i'm trying to take that and dissect it and put it down in tasting notes to communicate to someone it's really hard in just 10 tasting notes to describe what we're tasting here and you can have a whole conversation about one any one sample like we've been doing for the last five yeah. minutes and we're tasting the same thing. You know, we're just we're just comparing notes here. I'm not trying to explain something that you haven't ever had before. That's a whole that's right. new. That's that's another challenge because I don't know what. I don't know if you can. That's why I, I feel silly when I start trying to talk and explain, especially something like rye to someone that has not had rye because rye doesn't taste like anything else except rye in a whiskey. Now that's that's it. If you don't know. 
then you know, I just find myself talking in circles and, and sounding silly and, and using terms like, you know, reminds me of Christmas. It's green. It's, it's like uh-huh. not, you know, it's, it's, so it's always a challenge. It's interesting. I think that's part of what makes it so, so interesting or that there's such a, it's so fun. fun. In, a, in a group environment, I always think, you know, people start popping off words and it really gets your imagination spinning. And like having that group shared experience is really wonderful because it allows you to have a little sense of humor about the whole thing, you know, because yeah. everybody's got, has their own opinion and there's there's no wrong answers everyone is bringing in their own personal experience into the tasting room and that's what's fun is we get to learn from each other you know it's a it's a big turn on i think i really dig it but this is the four roses small batch select and this is a new release how long has the the small batch select been available now uh we started we launched it last april and we started out in only five markets um California was one of them. Um, this year, we're adding about 15 new markets. And then within the next year or two, we'll be nationwide with it. So it's sort of a, a gradual release. But with the markets that we're in now, we're we're hitting most of, I wouldn't say most of the population, but we're, we're getting it out there. And, you know, that's one of our big pushes now is to try to, to, um, hit all the markets with this because I, as I said earlier, we're, this is our first new release that's widely available or that's our standard lineup in 14, 15 years. Yet at the same time, there are some markets that can't get it yet. But the idea is to get this out there to everyone that wants to experience just another fast of what Four Roses has to offer. Um, it's great because you know, the private barrel program we offer non-chill filtered and barrel strength through that or the limited editions, but not everybody can get those. Um, even if you're in a market where it, it shows up every September or October, and those things fly off the shelf. So this is sort of the answer to that. It, it's getting into some of those attributes, offering consumers something higher proof, non-chill filtered. But the difference is the idea is to make it accessible to everybody. That's right. I love it. I love it. And finally, I wanted to get into this 2017 limited edition. Do you have some of that at your place as well? I do. Yes. I have a small sample here. Let me. Well, Laura did a good job. She has this perfectly aligned here. I was like, I hope this works out. She did great. I'm happy about this one too. I haven't tasted it in probably a year or more. But I really Uh-oh. like this one. This one is I, I won't put any suggestive words into your into your mouth yet. So I'll let you experience. So it. this is just three of the recipes. There's a 15-year OESK, a 13-year OESK, and a 12-year OESV. And what what were what are the like trademarks of that yeast strain and that grain? Uh, those are what's really unique about this one is in that code the the second letter the E that designates the low rye mash bill. Um, so this one is all twenty percent. So this is going to be lower in rye than pretty much anything that we put out except a private barrel that is the same recipe. So it's all the low rye mash bill recipes and it's the ke strain and the ve strain so two of the batches 
A, spicy yeast strain. One of them is B, which is the delicate fruit. So really, this one was designed, I just on paper, you can kind of get a sense of what it's going to be like. It's not going to be overly fruity. It's not going to be super heavy on the rye. It's really kind of right there, like center mass of, of what Four Roses does, sort of the, the best of what we do right in the middle of, of our range. The delicate fruit, delicate bite. Um, the age isn't, it's not overly aged. It's, it, it has some nice age on it. Don't get me wrong. You're not going to get out of balance with a whole lot of oak or any astringency. This one's really just so mellow. It's smooth. almost, it's almost like savory to me. It's got a, like the way that the fruit and the spice are mixing. It's almost like it's been cooked a little bit. It's, it's like been melded to itself, you know, like there's the the fruit blends into the spice but the woodiness is there at least on the nose now i'm curious to taste it and this one is at barrel strength yeah 2017 four roses limited edition and actually i have a bottle here if you want to this is mm. gorgeous 54 percent or 108 proof Woo! love it it's got this arcing like the, the cherry, it's like a cherry syrup, but it's, it's it's not syrupy. I don't want, it's got that dense, dark cherry note going on, but it's it's also very light. And it, it's got the floral aspects coming through. It's got an astringency and a woodiness without being bitter. It, it comes across as dark chocolate or cacao. Oh, it's really incredible. Oh yeah, spicy but not not insulting. This is very refined. It's like got that beautiful. Yeah, it, it's old, so it has that wonderful like. It's it's together unto itself. There's no there's no rude aspects sticking out. It's had a chance to make friends with itself. You know. Yeah, I, I feel it's so well integrated. Um, the word that comes to mind for me is elegant. It's just. Nothing, nothing is over, no flavors overpower it or dominate. It's just everything is in there integrated, kind of sharing and balancing and just creating a, just such a mellow, mellow drink. It, you know, it comes in, it, it doesn't hit your palate really hard. It doesn't, you know, front of the palate, mid palate, finish. It's just even from the beginning to the end and all those flavors just kind of unfold. And into a finish that, and the finish is where I start to get some of that, a little bit of the oak. But like you said, it's not like sometimes you get oak can be like a wet blanket. It, it sort of mutes out some of the more delicate, interesting flavors and kind of dominate. And then on the far extreme, it can be astringent and just flat out oaky and gives you that dry impression. Here, I think it. It speaks up just enough to let you know it's there to make it interesting and pretty hard in the finish. But I guess balanced and elegant is the way I would describe this one. It's not too showy. Wow. Some years, like the year before, oh. it was, that was the, the year of the fruit. Like that one was OE strain. Um, I always said to some people, it'll probably be polarizing. Um, some people will love it. People like the fruit will love it. The people that don't will probably just like it a lot. 
but this one I think is, is for everybody. This to me, it's almost like a Manhattan all by itself. It's got this like orangey aspect, that heavy, dark uh, cherry note, but it also has like this cool herbaceous, like an earthy herbaceousness about it. It's really earthy on the finish to me. That the cacao is really complex. I get other herbs in there, uh, other than it's not nutty, but I want to say like some dark green dark green herbs that are in there that are nuanced with spice so it's it is almost this like savory blend with the sweetness on the front end it's really quite amazing what is the bottle price on the limited edition in your neck of the woods uh here it's about 140 140 150 exquisite world-class bourbon that is something to be proud of right there my goodness Wow. So now you've been master distiller for five years. Do you have a, a do you have a, a vision in terms of where where do you think the American whiskey world is moving toward? Like you guys are like one of the big boys of bourbon. Do you see shifts happening in the American bourbon world? Do you think that like there's a, a new road that's going to be happening in terms of like more experimentation of fermentation or anything like that? Or what, what's the future, do you think? Uh, I can't really predict, obviously, where it's going to go. But I do think there's, there's a lot of opportunity for an evolution now because more people are experimenting, innovating than any time that I'm aware of. Um, it seems like you know, I'm sure there was a ton of... Uh, hit and miss experimentation in the past. And I think we kind of hit on the mark at some point as an industry, whether it was 75, 150 years ago, but we, it was a long time refining to where we are now. And there's still some variation in how everyone produces, but with the guidelines to making bourbon and the methods that most everyone employs, you know, I feel like we, we kind of hit that mark and, and that's where we are today. But I do think it's exciting and interesting because who knows what's going to happen. Um, you know, I think if you go too far out of that that range of the definition of bourbon with innovation, you won't be producing bourbon. But not to say that what you're something producing, else. it might be something else and it might be something fantastic. So I love the innovation that's going on. And I'm really curious to see where it takes us. And I think we're going to see in the next, and we're already seeing a lot of it, but in the next three to four years when some of this more innovative whiskey starts also having an age on it to yes. really judge it against more traditional methods. It'll be interesting to see and gauge, you know, where if, if needle needles being moved and how far and into where. So, you know, as, as a producer, it, it's exciting. It, it's an exciting time for, for whiskey, for bourbon. For sure, all these craft distilleries across America that are starting to finally have products that are of age enough that they can start to be put next to what the big boys are putting out is it's a, a time for great opportunity for change. And and what better time coming out of this whole COVID experience where people have been shut in and it's been a time of self-reflection and now we are looking at all this push for social justice happening in our culture, which is another 
chance for reflection to challenge our own old ideas with new ones and to keep evolving as a society. It's, it's a great time to be alive. Brent Elliott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. You guys out there in Kentucky, please stay safe, stay healthy. And as we slowly come out of the time of coronavirus, we hope to be able to come out there soon, or at least maybe have you come out to LA sometime soon once it's safe to fly again and all of that. But thank you so much. It's really been wonderful. I wanted to give thanks to, of course, it's, it's an honor. Uh, I also wanted to thank Andrew Apple, our podcast producer, for helping to make it all happen. Laura Badish, who helped handle uh, the, the setup of making this all happen. It's not, it's not easy to get a master distiller to take a little time off from his busy schedule and talk with us. So thanks for all of that. Uh, any other shout outs? Oh, I guess we want to, I wanted to personally uh, put a little uh, cheers to Mr. Al Young, who we were speaking out earlier about, but I know you guys, he passed in the last year and that's part of your family out there. And so uh, I want to give a cheers to Al Young and to all his family out there in Kentucky and all his work family there at Four Roses. Cheers to Al. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget, drink to remember. Remember.